uh, if you got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. We're starting chapter 3, which is a text on marriage, kind of. I understand that about two-thirds of our church is unmarried, so you're probably wondering, well, I should have stayed home today. (laughs) Oh, but don't you worry. I've got some things for you this morning. Uh, But this is God's Word and the principle that has been weaving itself through this book uh, is sure and true. It's simply making its mark on various relationships uh, in the church and in society, and so we're going to delve into that today. But I'm going to read First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. And as you're turning there, just reminding us what First Peter is about. First Peter is a book, uh, a letter written by the Apostle Peter to a group of exiles, right, A group of exiles who, uh, in various uh, positions and statuses and contexts in the ancient world, uh, in what is now modern-day Turkey, in Asia Minor, decided uh, to give their lives to Christ and follow after him. And these are people who are living during a time where something like that is very difficult, There is a cost involved. To follow Jesus, to make a tangible effort to follow after Jesus, uh, carries with it some sacrifice and some costs for all the people that Peter is speaking to. And so he writes this letter to them in a way uh, to help them navigate between that tension, uh, the tension that exists in the Christian life that I belong to heaven, I belong to the kingdom of God, my life is steered by the kingdom of God, and yet I live in a world and in a context in which those values are not always recognized. How do I navigate that tension? And Peter has been writing along those lines, uh, and we've been summarizing kind of the, the basis of his message, which is, we put it this way, that we as Christians are sent into the context in which we live. We are supposed to be there intentionally, on purpose, and yet we are simultaneously called to be set apart for God's holy purpose. And so Peter has been just kind of outlining that and drilling it down uh, in some of these texts. We just went over uh, what that looks like uh, with the church and government officials. We looked uh, specifically at slaves and masters, employee-employer relationships, as we've been explaining. And now Peter speaks about married couples. And he says this in 1 Peter Chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. I'm just going to read the whole thing, uh, and then we'll get started. Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see a respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word. 
Some of you, I noticed, cringed as I was reading through all seven of those verses. Some of these terms, and there are a number of them, subject, submission, called him Lord, so on and so forth, that we don't really use in our modern vernacular. Submit, or submission, which comes up later, is not a regularly used term in our everyday language. If you are married, you should actually never use those terms in conversation. It's probably not going to end well. <laughs> Submit is, seems to be kind of an archaic term that has fallen into disrepair. We never use it, although the times that we do use it are in very specific times, that, uh, such as when we have to submit paperwork to someone who is demanding it, like we submit a TPS report, for example. Or we use it in terms of a near-death experience, such as in mixed martial arts fighting. It is something you do to someone, put a submission hold on them in order to make them cow to your will and to lose. Or for those of us who have toddlers between, I don't know, the ages of two and four, we understand these little people as trying to bend us to their will. Everything in the universe is there for them. But outside of TPS reports, mixed martial arts fighting, and toddlers, submission is not, I don't think we would say, the substance of loving relationships between two people who have gotten together. And perhaps it's for that reason that it's really hard for us to read a text like this. Perhaps that's why we cringe. We would never use submit or submission in any type of normal relationship. I wouldn't use it with my friends. I wouldn't use, even use it with my employees, much less my best friend. So perhaps you're cringing as you read the words of the Apostle Peter for some of those reasons. And perhaps that's the reason why it's so difficult to read this text today. To read words like verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, or be submitted to your own husbands. Something that's actually anchored all the way back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, where he tells people broadly, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Meaning, in these various relationships, here's how I want you to do it. And he keeps using this word that many of us hate. Submit, submission. I want to go out on a limb and, and guess that the reason that there is this deep cultural aversion to the concept of submission and submitting is because, you know, oh, I would say this cultural aversion to the concept of submission is at least three reasons. There's probably more, but at least three reasons. And I want to actually speak specifically to women listening to this right now. Just nod your head if I'm getting this right. Throw something at me if I'm getting it wrong. But I'm, I'm guessing that the reason we cringe is because we have a modern understanding of words like submission. For me, when I hear that word, I hear someone saying, do what I say. We don't like that, and I can completely resonate with that. The second reason, 
Perhaps you read verses like this, not just in uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, but also Ephesians 5 and some various other ones when apostles speak of marriage. We hear the promulgation of stereotypes. Perhaps you are reading this passage right now and you're thinking to follow Jesus and to be in a Christ-centered marriage, I need to fit into this, this bubble or this box and perhaps a list of stereotypes are coming up in your mind right now. And whatever they, they may be, right? The stereotypes are endless. Men are supposed to do this, and women are supposed to do this, and men are supposed to, you know, bring home the bacon, women are supposed to be, you know, at home taking care of stuff, and the list goes on and on and on. And maybe you're a woman, and you're a business owner, an entrepreneur, and you're like, I like doing this. Like, does that mean all of my dreams are going to be squashed? Maybe you're, you're asking Things like that. The third one is its history of abuse. And that throughout the centuries and throughout the years, men have used verses like these to mistreat and abuse women. And they did it in the name of Christ, and they did it using proof texts. And we must face that and approach it Humbly, of course, but I would say also nervously, lest we do the same thing, and maybe even with a little bit of fear. I'm scared <laughs> of reading this passage and getting it wrong, so there should be a, a sense of healthy nervousness when we approach this. But those, I think, are maybe three things maybe three common things that make us cringe when we read verses like 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. And I want to interact with all of those fears as we go through Peter's words, the best that I can. But before we do that, we need just a little bit of cultural context, right? You should never read a Bible verse on its own. I want to give you a little bit of a background so that you can kind of understand what Peter is thinking as he's addressing women in that time period. It's very easy for us to see these social passages, what are often termed the household codes, the way we interact with government, the way we interact with uh, masters or employees, and the way we interact with spouses, as Peter, just grumpy Peter, just, telling, just ruining people's lives. And the fact that he's only speaking to slaves, wives, and poor peasants under the government also seems like he's one of those, those people. He's just the man, just trying to subjugate everybody. But if you understand his intent for writing, you actually see and feel the mercy surging through his veins. That Peter, again, is speaking to those in society who are most vulnerable, and he's speaking to those who are most vulnerable that have found Jesus Christ. And he's writing to the most vulnerable. He's writing to the most marginalized. He's writing to those who are at most risk of being ostracized and hurt in order to give them hope and a future to move forward. And he's doing it within a very particular context. In the Greco-Roman world, Things were a little bit different than they are today in Santa Barbara. And by a little, I mean maybe a lot. But in that world, 
there was a very deep set sense of patriarchy, meaning that the man, the husband of the family, was very much the leader and the master in a variety of ways. Everyone under him was uh, subject to his authority in a very powerful way that actually affected the way that society ran. And so in that culture 2,000 years ago, women, slaves, and, uh, and a, uh, a few other people in society didn't actually have the same amount of rights as men did in that time. And for a woman to marry into a family meant that she was, in a very large sense, dependent on him. Not just for food, but also for social standing, for respect, for honor, for everything. In that day, one writer uh, tells us, uh, much unlike uh, today's culture in which you can kind of have your own identity, you can have your own circle of friends, it's actually normal, you can even uh, have a different religion. It's not uncommon for a couple to be worshiping two different gods in our society, but in that day, this was very bizarre. In fact, one writer in the ancient, uh, in the ancient world of that day said that a, wife's, uh, a wife should have the same friends as her husband, same circle of friends. And of those friends, the primary ones are his gods. And so in that culture, it was very common for the wife to be integrated not only into the same friends as husband, but also to worship his gods. And to veer from that was very perilous. Not only did it shame him and bring down his honor, but it was also looked upon by society at that time as a little bit dangerous. And so they wanted to keep a certain amount of order. Now, it's into this context that Peter writes. And I want, I want you to just imagine the scene, okay? That in the Greco-Roman world, as this stuff is happening, there's order in Rome and in uh, Asia Minor at that time, Wives were being subject to their husbands, worshiping the same gods, hanging out with the same friends, uh, pretty much just not causing a lot of drama and trouble. Uh, let's just pick on one person in particular. We'll call her Dora, okay, uh, in ancient Bithynia. Dora isn't a Greek name. It's just a, we watch a lot of Dora the Explorer. <laughs> so that's the first name that came to mind. So, Dora. Rolling around in the marketplace, hanging out with her girlfriends who are the spouses of her husband. They're getting along and uh, maybe there's also some slaves in the marketplace or some servant boys or whatever the, the case may be. But in her social circle, Dora hears the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a light shines through her heart and reveals the saving power of Jesus and she sees that he is who he says he is. And not just in an intellectual way, but her heart is transformed. And for the first time, she can never go back. Now she's in a complicated situation. What's she going to say to her husband? And what's he going to do to her? And what's her standing going to be in culture in that time? There's a lot of complex problems with this. And yet she can't just go back. She's been changed from the inside out. She's been born again. There might be some who would go back and try to persuade their husbands, argue them into submission. I imagine Peter knows that, that in that culture, uh, somewhat of a shame-based culture, that wouldn't have worked very well, and it would have actually backfired on the wife. And so Peter writes 
to wives who are experiencing this. Writing to the marginalized, writing to those with little power, saying, listen, I want you to continue doing what you're used to doing, what is socially acceptable in culture. Be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, meaning that for you to go and nag, not you, but people thousands of years ago, to nag your husbands into submission to chase this crazy Christ that you have just discovered would actually repel them and actually hurt you even more. Even if some do not obey the word, let them be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter is saying there's a better way. You, you could actually win your husband and through your husband, your entire family, and through your family, you could actually affect society. Try this. Instead of trying to argue your husband into submission, just live a transformed life in Christ. Let them see that you are not actually a threat to them, but that you're actually a better human because of this Christ. You have to understand that in those ancient centuries, Christianity was still a new movement. People have, have only just begun to hurt, hear about it, and it was rubbing against the edges of the common religions of that day. And so when Christianity came uh, uh, to fruition in those early centuries, it was seen as a threat. Seen as a threat to family, seen as a threat to social structures, seen, seen as a threat uh, to overall culture, and looked upon with disdain. So you could imagine a husband in that day seeing his wife following this strange religion, this strange new movement, and not wanting to have anything to do with it. Peter is now saying, hey, just live a normal life and let them see that you're actually better because of this Jesus that you follow. Kind of along the lines of some of the things that we've been studying through Peter, it's not just enough to talk about Jesus. You also want to be excellent at your vocation. If you bag groceries at Ralph's, people aren't going to care about what Jesus means to you if you keep putting the frozen peas next to the dry bread, right? And so on and so forth with everything that we do in our callings and vocations. Nobody cares about your Jesus if you are a terrible person. And so Peter is writing to wives saying, in this context, be awesome. Be excellent. Be someone who is worthy of honor and respect. In this context, here's what submission means to Peter. And I want to begin to peel away our society's view and our view, really, our modern view of submit and submission, which for us probably means more like a one-sided authoritarian relationship. I tell you what to do, and you just do it blindly. Peter has something else in mind, and he starts with the example of Jesus, which we went through a couple weeks ago in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. I just want to read it. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
I want you to see two different things that come out of Jesus' example. Understanding, of course, that Jesus is the most unique person in history, and he had a pretty unique calling that we're not to mimic. He's saving the world from their sin. But Peter also says there's an aspect of his life that we are to copy. One, that he suffered for people. He denied what he wanted. We could say it this way. He denied his own comfort. He denied his own ambition. He denied even his own desires for the sake of other people that by his wounds they would be healed. If we were to take this to try to get an understanding of what Peter means when he tells people to submit to other people, we could say something like this. Submission in the biblical sense means giving up what you want in order to serve somebody else. We're not talking about blind, authoritarian obedience to another person. We're talking about serving another person at the expense of self. In that way, it's actually very similar to just biblical love. Giving up what you want in order to serve someone else. Uh, very useful word in our modern day uh, to get a, a, give us a glimpse of the biblical idea of submission is to defer. I defer to you. In Peter's context, a wife that deferred to her unbelieving husband out of love for Jesus had the potential for transformation in her husband and in people within their social circles. This is exactly what Paul was speaking about when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 13 through 14, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. See, same idea. Peter, uh, Paul is dealing with the same thing. The gospel was a gospel that was very good news to the poor and marginalized. Hello, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who uh, are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so in the first century, revival got its start among the least of these. Among those who in society's eyes were, were less than them. Those who were pushed down by those in power. And so you would expect in a situation like that, those types of people getting saved en masse. And that's what we see in the Gospels. Slaves, women in that day, the poor, the peasant. And this makes sense why Paul and Peter were often speaking to those very people. He goes on to say, uh, you can imagine the situation, a, a wife gets saved, but her husband is a pagan. She, she might be thinking to herself, should I leave him? Uh, Paul says, no. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. He's not saying that your husband or your wife will get saved because you are awesome and married to them. He is, uh, nor is he, uh, excuse me, I should clarify that. He's not saying that they will get into God's good graces by your merit. Rather, he's saying your presence in there as a salt and light, your presence there, as Paul says, as the fragrance of Christ, actually matters. It actually works on people within relationship to you. He's saying, don't go away. If you can help it, don't go away. Stay there. Your holiness actually affects people around you. You might actually transform the person that you're with. And this is exactly why Peter, good old Pete, goes on with these wives in Asia Minor to say, listen, instead of nagging, instead of complaining, instead of arguing, your conduct is more powerful than your words. Verse 
uh, end of verse 1, so that even if some do not obey the word, even if they think what you're doing is silly, they have, want nothing to do with the gospel, they want nothing to do with your uh, religion, they want nothing to do with you, even if they don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. The second thing he says is, uh, not only is conduct more powerful than words, but character is more powerful than appearance. In other words, Peter isn't just saying, hey, don't braid your hair anymore. If that were a universal command for all people everywhere, most half the people in this room right now would be doomed, including my own daughter. He's not saying, hey, stop braiding your hair, gold jewelry is bad, clothing is silly, only wear burlap. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, character is more powerful than your appearance. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, let your true adorning, okay, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. I love that phrase, the hidden person of the heart. Your character is louder than your physical appearance. Your conduct is louder than your words sometimes. There are times where We do want to use our words, but in a context like this, Peter says, hey, try this. Let the transformation of your heart speak for itself. When people around you who feel threatened by your religion, and this is a universal uh, help for all of us, when people around you in your context feel threatened by your way of belief, they think you're irrelevant, they think you're extreme, just live the life of a transformed Christian. And over time, as Peter has said already, They who are slandering you will see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If words fail, let them see your inner beauty. By the way, this isn't just for women. Paul also said in 1 Timothy 4.8, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. He's basically saying, hey, yes, go to the gym, do some sit-ups, but if you're going to do that, really pay attention to your inner life. Nothing speaks as powerfully as your inner life. After Peter does this, other than these very, very broad examples, these general examples, there's actually no specific details or concrete behavior for his first line. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Besides these very general ways of speaking, Peter doesn't actually, and Paul doesn't actually give us detailed examples of what this looks like. What does it look like for, uh, uh, for someone to be in submission to another? And he doesn't actually give us details. He just says, do it. Which means that we should probably avoid stereotypes or trying to fit into other people's opinions of what that might look like. If it's not in the Bible, we should stop trying to push them. For example, things like, well, to be uh, submitted to your husband means that you should stay home and wash the dishes, and your husband should lead a business or work. That might work for you, and it might not. Or the husband needs to be charismatic and, and courageous and loud, and the wife should be quiet and not say anything. That might work for you, and it might not. There, are, there might be some marriages where the wife is the charismatic person and she has a lot to say about things and he's an introvert. Hello. 
and this is my one hour to get my words out. And I take advantage of it completely. But so much of the pressure we put on each other, when you examine it, doesn't actually come from the Bible, does it? We should avoid stereotypes or pressuring others into a stereotype that we think is right or that is working for us personally. When Brianna and I got married, we immediately fell into all the right stereotypes. She stayed at home, she cooked, I went to work, I brought home the bacon, and little by little we saw that certain things weren't working. One day she was, uh, and this is actually pretty recent, but she was like, she asked me to cook dinner and I did it and was very happy. And she was like, this is awesome. After the day that I've gone through, like, it's really nice that you would, you would cook dinner. And after the day that I had gone through, which was a bunch of meetings, I was really thrilled to be able to work with my hands in a creative fashion. It was very life-giving to me. So we switched. Now I cook dinner every night. And Brianna tends to be a little smarter than me about a few or a lot of things. <laughs> One of them is math. You know, she's just better at math. She's better at uh, handling money. She's better at those types of brain things because she went to, uh, what's, it the, what's it called? School. <laughs> <laughs> so in our home, for as long as we've been a couple, she's the one who handles the finances. I cook dinner and she handles the finances. And we don't care. But in all of those things, we came to those conclusions together. Because as Peter says, she is my co-heir in Christ. She's my partner in the kingdom of God. We are equal in the sight of God. And we are a team. And so we should, according to what we do not see in scripture, avoid some of these weird stereotypes. They should be between husband and wife and God. But you may say, well, if we don't have concrete descriptions of day-to-day marriage, what is a marriage supposed to look like if it's done well? Is there at least any picture of what that's supposed to look like? Any direction? Is there anything universal for marriage that will help? And I would say that the most vivid picture of a healthy marriage in the New Testament is found in the book of Ephesians. I just want to read you a very long passage of scripture. We actually went through this as a church when we went through the book of Ephesians. So I just want to read a long section so you get a sense of it. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15. Remember Paul is speaking to people in relationships in general in the church. And then as an umbrella statement moves into marriage. And he says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. From there, he moves into this section. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any. Any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. I want you to take special note here. One, this is not only Peter's command in a special context, this is universal call on God to people who are married. And it's grounded in the gospel, in the way that Jesus and the church relate to one another. The second thing is, I want you to hone in on Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, which says, as an umbrella statement for everything to come, you are to be submitted to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. So you say, is there anything universal for marriage that will help us in my marriage? Yes, Healthy marriage looks like mutual submission. Or, if you want to call it this, mutual empowerment. See, contrary to popular opinion, it would seem that it's actually both parties in a marriage that are to be in submission to one another. Not one person looking at this text saying, Ah, I'm the leader and I get to call all the shots. I want a grilled cheese sandwich for dinner tonight, and I want to watch football, and I want all my laundry to be done, and I want this and this and this, and I am going to go to sleep whenever I want and sleep. This is not the calling on your life for marriage. The calling is not on one person to dictate the pattern. It is on mutual submission. At least that's what it seems to suggest. Both parties in a marriage are to be submitted to the other in a particular way. Paul would go on to say that for women, for wives, it is to submit by trusting and respecting their husbands. Getting that from verse 22 through 24 when he speaks about submission and also in uh, verse 33. When he says wives should submit and everything to their husbands, uh, excuse me, uh, should respect their husbands, this is speaking of trust and respect for the other. This is deference. Remember, not mindless obedience, just like in all the passages that came before this. This isn't speaking about mindless obedience. This is speaking about a posture of trust and deference. And yes, even when it's hard. Some of you are like, yeah, well, what if my husband is an idiot? <clears throat> Surely God would have me, like, you know, switch roles right here. Actually, it's even when it's hard. It's even when he doesn't deserve it. It's even when he's an idiot. Remember Peter's context. He's speaking to people in situations where they're being treated or mistreated. Excuse me. Now, the caveat here is that the type of mistreatment Peter's speaking about is not physical. Whenever there's a situation, and if there's a a situation in a marriage where someone is being physically abused, 
You have to understand right now that that is, one, a crime, and two, that is a sin. A sin against someone that God is saying right now is your equal partner in Christ. So deeply does God feel about this that he actually threatens husbands. Says, if you do not live in an understanding and honoring way, your prayers will be hindered. That speaks of intimacy with God. God's serious about this. When Peter says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, that, uh, that phrase, live with your wives, actually has some uh, connotations of sexual intimacy, so it includes that. He goes on to say, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And you might be uh, hearing that and feeling insulted. Well, there's nothing to read into that verse. He's not saying that women are less than in any way. It's simply that generally speaking, men are often stronger physically than women, certainly in the first century. And right now he's speaking about a husband's ability to abuse, it sounds like it, abuse their, their, their position in a marriage. And he's saying, be careful. The person you're married to, your wife, is your co-heir in the grace of life. They are your equal. Show honor to them. Be understanding with them. In other words, if I could rephrase what he's saying here, don't be a bully. Definitely not physically, but also emotionally and spiritually, don't be a bully. That's what Peter seems to be saying. Or else, you're going to have to take that up with your God should sober every husband in the room. This is also very revolutionary for Peter to say they're your co-heirs and equals. In that day, wives were not considered to be equal. Peter is right now indirectly and very subtly usurping the societal norms of that day, as he has been throughout these verses. Women are to submit by trusting, excuse me, not women in general to men, but wives to husbands, submitting by trusting and respecting their man. Paul would go on to say to men that the way men are to submit is by loving and serving their wives over themselves. When he says, <clears throat> husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You've got to ask yourself, well, how did Christ love the church? See, I actually think that Peter's and Paul's demand on the husband is almost a little more intense than the ones that he's placing on the wife. Where he calls them to trust and respect, he's calling the husband to lay everything down, to love them as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died for her. Now, the immediate response that some of us will have to this is dudes, is like, oh yeah, I, I would do that in a heartbeat, lay my life down for my wife, take a bullet for her. Our mistake in interpreting that way, like it's calling us to some sort of heroism uh, at the end of our lives, is that we think the Bible is calling us to die for our spouse, but not to live for them. That maybe when the time comes down the path, I will give my life up in some sort of sensational act of heroism, but right now I'm not going to do the dishes, or take out the trash, or listen, or humble myself or empower her in her dreams. 
and her ambitions and in her giftings. Peter and Paul, excuse me, Paul isn't saying, hey, at the end of your life, make it good. He's saying right now, you're to give your life up. What does that really mean when we get down into the weeds? It means that this, the type of leader, because some of you are saying, well, wait, aren't I supposed to, Peter, uh, Paul says that we are the head, uh, just, uh, you, we are the head in this marriage, we have some form of leadership. I'm supposed to be some sort of leader. Yeah, but what kind of leader? The type of leader that Jesus called his disciples to be when he said, I don't want you to be leaders like some of these other people in Greece, these benefactors who lord it over those in relationship to them. But for you, the first of you, the leaders among you are to be servants to all. You want to be a leader? This is called servant leadership, which is an incredible, long-lasting, ongoing, consistently made act of serving. How do you serve your spouse? By, uh, by deferring by putting their needs before your own, by laying your life down for her, not at the end of your life, but in the day-to-day operations of being in love with someone else. When it comes down to it, what this might look like in a conflict is that when we're butting heads, when there's a decision to be made and you don't know what to do, the husbands should often be the first to defer to give up and to say, I love you and I trust you. We should be jumping at times like that. I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, gosh, I hope this person next to me is taking notes. <laughs> just digging, just elbow. Like you were, your hands were on the armrests, but now they're like moving over like, mm. hey, you listening? You listening? Some of you, someone, uh, you're, perhaps your spouse isn't here and you're like, oh, I'm sending them this sermon notes. I'm going to be sending them this video. That is our tendency with the word of God, right? Oh, I know somebody who can hear this. Too often I think we think of verses, especially these, as this would be really good for my spouse. This would be really good for my friend. This would be really good for my coworker. This would be really good for so-and-so. They really need to hear this right now. And in so doing, we're essentially saying, you need to do this for me. If you're a husband, you're like, my wife needs to trust me more. If you're a wife, you're like, my husband needs to love me more. But God isn't writing a letter to your spouse. He's writing to you. And it's not really your business what he's saying to your spouse. Let him deal with your spouse. He's writing to you. And what is he saying? Here is how you are supposed to live. This is the type of person I want you to be in a marriage relationship. This is the type of person I want you to be in biblical community. This is the type of person I want to make you be. And when marriage works, what it looks like are equal partners moving together. As one writer puts it, love does not consist in gazing at each other, but in looking together in the same direction. You know what the strange thing is, at least uh, for me, is when I look throughout the church at 
married couples who I admire, married couples who I'm like, I want to be, I want to be like that. I want my marriage to, to be like that. When you look at them, they very rarely seem to fit the stereotypes. They are never, at least that I've seen, that, that stereotypical authoritarian, like, you must do this for me. They're never like that. I mean, from what I've seen, maybe behind closed doors, it's a different story. But from what I've seen in the marriages that I admire, they're not fighting for mutual authority, but rather they are showing mutual submission. They look, for all intents and purposes, like a team. To the single people, the hundreds of you, (laughs) you're welcome, whoever that was. What does this look like for you? Or what, what does this mean for you? You're asking yourself, this is great for the 10 married people in the church, but what does it mean for me? Well, there's clearly some of you that are, not all of you, some of you that are preparing to get married, hoping to get married, wanting to get married. The obvious thing to get out of this is, again, your tendency I'm going to look for somebody just like this. But I would like to say yes to that, but also, what is God doing in you? What is God making you? What is, uh, what is the type of person that God wants to make you? I would reckon to say, through the book of 1 Peter that we've gone through already together, he wants to instill in you a sense of self-denial. To write in your heart today, a different narrative than what our culture tells us, which is this. Your happiness comes from expressing your sense of independence. The the biblical view of happiness is rather not that your happiness comes from independence, but it actually comes from interdependence. And that might not be a spouse, but it is biblical community, and it is your relationship with God. Your happiness in life is not tied in with your individualism or your independence or your sense thereof, as culture would like you to believe, but how deeply tied you are to God in Christ and God's people. Question I would have for those of you that are single is what are the areas that he's calling you to give up? What are the areas in your life that he's calling you to trust him with? The entire Christian life is one of peeling away the stuff we thought could make us happy in order to find and gain more of Christ. Marriage is just one little vignette of that. Ask yourself, using that parallel in Ephesians 5, what do I need to give up and what am I not trusting you with? Because I want more of Christ in my life. In that way, singleness, contrary to popular opinion, even within the church, is not a deficiency. We've kind of perpetuated that lie that if you're single, you're kind of a half-Christian, and to be like a spiritual Christian, you need to find a spouse. That's a lie, and it's a very destructive lie, and nobody in the Bible believed it. And if you do believe it, you have to come to grips with some very effective people in life, namely Jesus and Paul. who somehow found 
ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction apart from a spouse. In fact, Paul, in one of his typical Pauline tangents, thought everybody in the whole world should be single. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28, and this is actually kind of funny, just how he says all of this, but he's like, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. Right before, these, right before this, he's like, if you have to, I guess go ahead. If you're going to burn with passion, go get married. Yet I want to remind you, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. I want, <laughs> I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. I'm not trying to burden you or make life excessively hard but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Bringing back the most important relationship you'll ever know. Just, Paul, I can just see him saying like, just get this one right. Single, married, in limbo, thinking about it, disgusted by it, whatever. Just get, just get this one right. Remember, Peter's writing to a group of exiles who are experiencing hardship for taking Jesus seriously. And he's reminding them that following Jesus is worth all the trouble that they are going through right now. Everything that you're going through, wondering and wishing and hoping, whether it's this or something else, gosh, I wish I could cut corners. I wish I could compromise just a little bit on this Christian thing. He's reminding you to say, following Jesus undividedly is absolutely worth it. Even though you're suffering for it right now, it is worth it. And the way forward is not by compromising your principles in Christ or by hiding from the problems, but by being fully immersed in the context in which you live while being completely set apart in holiness to the God that you love. Don't forget that. As one vignette, an example of that, here's marriage. But in life, don't forget this. And the greatest example that we have of this is the son submitting to the father for people who did not deserve it, namely you and me. And Jesus, we would never say, was less for giving up his rights to obey the father and to do what the father willed, but rather it was a sign of his greatness as he stepped down from his earthly throne to, go, to hang on the cross for people who despised him. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4 through 11, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Listen, who though he was in the form of God, he had all of these rights, he had all of this glory, he was awesome, he was doing things. We should listen to him. He put all of those privileges on the shelf and he condescended to our level. My paraphrase. He did, not account, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That's what that means. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. The greatest act of deferment and 
self-denial and humility and love was done by Christ for us. When he came down to our level and brought us out of the sin we got ourselves in. And so for those of you that are looking at this, I, this picture of marriage or relationship or love or self-denial saying, I can, I can barely handle my own garbage, much less a relationship with someone else. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe your marriage is a mess. Or maybe you're not married. Maybe you're single and all your relationships are a mess. And you're having a hard time listening to this ideal picture of what it looks like to be in relationship with anyone. Brother and sister, that is why the gospel is so good. That is why it is good news. The gospel is not primarily what you have done for God, but what he has done for you and your inability to do things right. And so your marriage is a mess, perfect opportunity to let Christ in. Your relationships are a mess, perfect opportunity to let Christ in. You're like, I'm not married, I don't have any relationships, I hang out in a closet 24 hours a day by myself like a monk. perfect opportunity to be in relationship with someone who's standing at the door knocking. The first act of the gospel is not to try and imitate Christ out of some self-righteous effort, but to receive his life and to receive his love. And when Christ's life and love is received in you, you'll begin to notice over time a slow transformation in the same direction. That reversal of the curse of our own individualism our own self-reference, our own independence, and you'll begin slowly able to operate, liberated to love other people. Only Christ can do that. And that's something that you want, whether it's marriage, singleness, job, family, work, vocation. Your first place to run to is at the feet of Jesus Christ, who lavishes upon people who ask mercy in their time of need. As we transition into worship through music, let's just begin to ask ourselves, Lord, where are the areas in my life that I have not given up to you? And where are the areas in my life where I do not trust you? And instead of just trying to force ourselves to trust and to give those things up, let's just ask, why? This beautiful Savior who's done everything for me, why am I having such a hard time with? And bring that answer to the foot of the cross and let him heal you today. Heavenly Father, we ask today that as we come before you during this time and begin to now turn our attention not towards marriage, not towards singleness, not even towards relationship, but towards the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray again for a sense of renewal in our midst. Maybe some of us are tired. Maybe some of us are worn out. Maybe some of us are depressed, bitter, resentful, fatigued, just not wanting to go another step. And I'm asking, Lord, on behalf of my friends, my, my family, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that your spirit of refreshing would fall upon us today. And that where the world has pushed us and made us tired and given us these ideals of what a happy life is supposed to be and maybe we've tried it and just been so burdened, 
may we hear today the call of our God, Jesus. We'd say, hey, you tired? Come to me. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, which is easy and light. And there you will find rest for your souls. May our souls be filled to overflowing with the power and beauty and life and breath of Jesus Christ. And may you remind us today, God, that what you do in our midst is completely different from how the world works. And may we leave this place thanking you so much for that. You are our hero. You are our Lord. You are our God and you are our Messiah. And we want to follow you wherever you choose to take us, trusting you and loving you little by little and step by step. We pray this in Jesus' name.